Huh? Oh, I'll have your head, you filthy Nord. Talk tough to me, huh? I love tough guys. Take that robe off. What? No! Let's get to bashing butts as well as these nuts. This is insane. Hello and welcome to the Page to Pixel podcast. I am your host, Reed Joan, and joined with me in this lovely basement is my co-host, Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, guy. It's good to be back here in person. I know. Just two guys sitting in a room together. Nothing can ever go wrong with that. Just in a basement, just like I grew up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, today um, we are continuing along with our series on the Elder Scrolls. In particular, we are talking about the third game in the series, which is the Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind, and then, of course, the Elder Scrolls Four. Oblivion. But before we actually jump into that, Jeremy, how much of Redguard and Battlespire did you end up playing? Zero. Yeah. It, did you actually did you look into it at all? Yeah. Yeah, it, it didn't look very good. No. Battlespire, I think, looked a little bit better than Redguard, but um, I think what uh, Redguard came out first, I believe. I thought it was the other way around. It could be the other way around. Yeah, I think... Battlespire right. was still the two-dimensional, like the oh, fake yeah. 3D. But it, I don't think that it didn't seem like there was much of a story. It was just kind of going through different levels of this tower. Right. Um, and Redguard, from what I understand of it, was very much um, kind of a cash-in, in a way, of like how the popularity of the Tomb Raider series, because the the, the movement of your character um, is very reminiscent of Lara Croft in Tomb Raider. And um, if you're not familiar with those two games, it's probably a good reason, because they are very simple, linear stories set within the Elder Scrolls universe. They are not the mainline games like Daggerfall or Morrowind or Oblivion. So yes, we are glancing over the those two games and really focusing on the mainline games. Uh, so last last week, last time, we talked about um, Arena and Daggerfall, which were the first two games in the Elder Scrolls series, and now we're kind of getting into the 2000s where the franchise really started to take off and gain a lot of commercial popularity. And we talked a lot about the lore and stuff like that last time. We talked about um, the world building, the races and stuff like that. But Jeremy wanted to take some time to talk a bit about the actual Elder Scrolls themselves and what they kind of signify for the the series. So if you want to take it away, Jeremy, and tell us a bit about the Elder Scrolls themselves. Absolutely. So if you're like me, initially you think the Elder Scrolls are just a physical object and a prophecy. I assume that's what you... Yeah. always thought they were they were just a prophecy written in a like a holy scroll yeah so that's not necessarily wrong um but it's not right so there it's a little bit more complicated than that and some of it's for kind of narrative game design reasons but think of them as more of a concept and like almost like time it's like it's trying to like explain what time or love is so they're kind of a byproduct of creation itself okay so they aren't created they aren't like they just existed as soon as existence started. Okay. And so they're not necessarily a prophecy as much as all past and present future events that could ever happen. So is it just like an embodiment of like power? Like why do people are why are people so like jealous to get their hands on them and stuff? So when you are able to look at them, it gives you not a glimpse of the entire potential outcome of everything. Mm-hmm. It gives you like one variety of that. Okay. So, the ability to see the future or see the past, or basically, it's it's any actions that could eventually uh, could happen. So, 
like conceptually what they are is sort of the idea of just choice or a story distilled into the game. So it's Doctor Strange. <laughs> kind of. I mean, realistically what it is, is it's the game itself inside of the game. Oh. And that's how, you know, you can have all these different characters and all these different choices, but they're still, in a way, canon. Like the end of Daggerfall, where all of the things happen. Yes, because the Elder Scrolls are sort of the a physical embodiment of the idea of a story or a narrative or reality. Okay. <laughs> no, like, it's really complex. Um, and yeah, so like trying to describe what they are is just, it's like trying to describe what time is. You can describe properties of it, but you can't really conceptualize what it is. Well, and I know in the later games, like Skyrim, there's like an entire order that's dedicated to like reading and understanding the Elder Scrolls. And like, again, my previous knowledge is that it's just scrolls that have some forbidden knowledge on it. And like the longer you read it, or observe it, you go blind and you kind of go insane. Exactly. So. so, essentially, it's it's basically, yeah, you're looking into all of the different possibilities of the infinite. It's literally, you're staring into the abyss. I see. Of infinity. Um, they do still have some powers, I believe, from what it sounds like, is you can go in and, like, rewrite history a little bit with them, but I believe it's after you steal the, the, uh, the Elder Scroll for the... Tell of Nocturne quest. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the videos I was watching said that they they basically took inventory of the Elder Scrolls, and every time they counted them, they got a different number. So they kind of exist and cease to exist and just appear as things solidify in the story of what happens. Like some of them will just fade away. New ones will like it's they're basically just the, all the potential choices. Sure. So they are basically the game inside of the game. I see. And that's uh, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's it's interesting that they went from just a a fill in title to make it sound cool, yeah, to literally being the sort of meta meta creation commenting on the game itself or not commenting but just literally being the game inside of the game. And I think as the games go on, they put a larger emphasis on the Elder Scrolls, yes, particularly with four and five. Um, I know in, in Morrowind they're obviously mentioned, but it really doesn't have a huge impact on the plot itself. Um, so that's interesting to kind of hear that they are in themselves a concept of experience and potentiality uh, within the universe. So that's uh, it's complex, but again, everything we've talked about so co- so far has been pretty complex. So um, yeah, let's let's kind of start things off after that nice uh, mindfuckery of what an Elder Scroll is. And talk about our experiences, personal experiences with both uh, Morrowind and Oblivion. So I will, uh, I'll let you talk a little bit. Let's start with Morrowind. Uh, what are some of your early experiences with Morrowind? Was it something that you played? Frustration. Was it something that you played back, like when it came out ish, or was it something after the fact? No, I played it after Oblivion. Okay. Um, and so yeah, a lot of my personal experience with Morrowind it was just frustration, mostly because of the combat system. Yes. Um, I powered through a little bit. A little bit of it, and I've like gone back a couple times, but I, when I went back, I didn't have a grasp on the combat system. So I think if I went back now, I would know what I'm doing a little bit more. But yeah, I didn't. I didn't play a, a lot of Morrowind. Okay, and you said you played it after Oblivion, so it wasn't anything where you're playing it when it was coming out or anything else like that. And I can understand if you're someone that had played. Um, Oblivion or even Skyrim and then trying to go back to these games, I think you're going to have a similar experience if you're someone like us now going back and playing Arena and Daggerfall. 
Uh, for me, um, you know, I don't want to take seven hours to talk about the importance of Morrowind in my life, but honestly, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to kind of gush about how much I love Morrowind. Um, I got it, I, I want to say, uh, just a few months after it actually came out in 2002. Uh, Morrowind was released in May and June of 2002, and what was really uncharacteristic about Morrowind is that um, it came out for both PC and Xbox. And typically, you don't really associate with these high-scale RPGs with console gaming. Typically, RPGs before this point had largely been a uh, uh, RPGs of this type, of this caliber, were typically reserved for PC gaming. You have the Ultima series, you have the Wizardry series, you have Baldur's Gate, stuff like that. Um, so it was really interesting to see Morrowind, this massive open, open, open concept RPG, come to Xbox. Um, so for me, I got it, I want to say in summer of 2003 when I got my original Xbox because I went to a friend's house and he was playing it and I was just kind of blown away by it. And I honestly think some of my fondest memories in my life were playing Morrowind with some of my, you know, middle school, high school friends until like six, seven in the morning when the sun's coming up, because all we would do every weekend is start a new game and then just do whatever we wanted. Because as, as far as my understanding goes before this game, there was nothing else like it. The fact that you just have to enter this this opening city and then you're really free to do whatever you want uh, was pretty huge. Uh, all the other games that I can think of before this, you have you follow a linear path. You play Halo, for example. You're following the level structure of what they want you to do. It's awesome. It's amazing. But something like Morrowind, where it just kind of throws you into this world and there's this nebulous sense of morality and choice and option was just like mind-blowing to me. So... For me, honestly, Morrowind is one of my top games of all time. It's probably my top five. Um, I do understand uh, coming from your perspective of frustration because I absolutely love this game, but even kind of coming back to it 20 years later, uh, it is a little frustrating. I've had to install quite a few mods in my recent plays uh, of the game, and even then I can still see some of the jank that still exists, uh, exists with it. Uh, I still think it's phenomenal, and I, I don't think it really caters to a lot of modern quote-unquote gamers, but I think for a lot of hardcore purists, it's still you know one of the best games ever because with Morrowind, you don't really have the quest marker system, and I think people in our current era have been really spoiled by games that kind of handhold you into, this is the direction you need to go. But with Morrowind, you're given journal entries that can be added onto and elaborated on the more people you talk to. And what's funny too is that sometimes you talk to people about a quest or a concept or a person or a place and you get mixed information, just like you kind of would in real life. So I understand the frustration of a player that's used to the comforts, I would say, of Oblivion and Skyrim kind of going back to Morrowind. But I really think you can see a lot of the... Um, standards and templates of the old school stuff and sort of setting the tone for Oblivion and Skyrim and the modern um, idea of what the Elder Scrolls is. I think Morrowind set the tone and really kind of broke it into a commercial space. I don't I don't know what the sales figures are exactly, but I know a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, I've made friends that have, you know, just because we had played Morrowind and stuff like that, like I've made friends and I know people that we still bond over our experiences in Morrowind. So it's to say it's a meaningful game to me is a, kind of an understatement, so to speak. That's basically what Oblivion is to me. And, and that's the same thing, too, is I think both games are amazing. 
I think they're both not without their faults. Oh, yeah, they, they've definitely got some jank or some goofiness. But... Oh, yeah. Um, and I was reading a... Um, the Polygon did this amazing oral history of the creation of Morrowind, and it's super, super long. I read it again this morning in prepara- preparation for this. And they were talking with like one of the designers on the game and realizing that they were using the creation tools to build the game. And you know, one person would go in and override something, and then another person would go in and override those assets or something else. So by the time that the game was going to be kind of sent to Microsoft for publication, they're like, this game's got to have a billion bugs in it. There's no way it's going to pass certification. And it did on its first try. Um, and I think a lot of people nowadays kind of attribute Bethesda to um, the, the bug game, mm-hmm. Bugthesda, right? And yes, Morrowind absolutely has its bugs and every other subsequent <laughs> Bethesda game does too. But there is kind of a weird charm in that too. Um, and I'm going to talk about um, the kind of creation of Morrowind because, as you kind of know, Jeremy, too, it's a very unique fantasy game. It's very much unlike a lot of the typical, I don't know, Lord of the Rings, D&D style gaming, and I'll kind of talk about what their rationale was in just a little bit. But without further ado, I'm going to kind of, <laughs> like I said, I could talk about uh, the importance of Morrowind to me um, for, for hours and hours, but I'm going to kind of shift gears to Oblivion. So... Since for you, Oblivion was such a massive franchise for you and a massive kind of breakthrough for you, what does Oblivion, what was your experiences with Oblivion and what does it mean to you? So Oblivion is basically the reason uh, I'm a nerd. I've okay. always I've always kind of played, I mean, I've always been a gamer, yeah. but like fantasy never really did anything for me. I don't like when Lord of the Rings came out, I watched him and just meh. Like I it just, yeah. I just didn't get it. No, I felt the same way with Lord of the Rings. I just, too. I just didn't get fantasy. Uh, sci-fi I've always been a fan of, you know, yeah. but, um, and, uh, yeah, when I built my computer, cause I didn't, I didn't play it on PC, I built my computer and one of my friends just gave me a totally legit copy of Oblivion Yep. and I started it and like, it, it took me like maybe an hour before it sunk its claws into me, but then it was just rolling down the stairs, like, too too orc to fuck yeah (laughs) Yeah. but no like just how engrossing the world and i think what it was uh i i heard someone in one of the videos i was watching about oblivion and just i guess the elder scrolls in general is it's not it's not a game it's a fantasy world simulator it kind of is and and like even even if the dialogue is just someone saying like go away i don't have time to deal with you like there's still there's still immersion in that yeah. and even though the faces looked bad for the day like they were they were fine for when it came out and that was what like november of 2006 i think yeah i think that sounds about right yeah i remember i don't think it was a launch title for like the xbox 360 but it was around then um and again yes yeah, same thing i can i have a lot of stories about oblivion and, too yeah, like the, the the character models look ugly, but like, have you ever looked around? There's a lot of ugly people in the world. It's true. You know, you go to any rural. <laughs> it's re- it's real realistic. Yeah, you go to any rural town, you're gonna see some real, uh, real, real charmers there. But no, it's like I was just blown away with how massive it was. The fact that um, you know the world is in potential danger, but I still find time to just go clear out a random cave or buy a house that's haunted. And oh, I love that quest. Oh my gosh, that's such a like just the haunted mansion quest and. Yeah, it was just, you, you do whatever you want, right? Like, I want to be a thief. So what's the first thing you always do when you're given freedom? You just steal stuff, kill guards, you'd be the biggest asshole in the world, and you come back and play it again, and 
you play as a different character, right? You you rewrite that story, and it's it, it just got me into Dungeons and Dragons, got me into all the, the the fantasy stuff I'm into right now. So, yeah, I would I would echo that same um, fantasy sentiment that you know Morrowind and Oblivion really opened the floodgates on that because I, I had watched like the Lord of the Rings movies in the early 2000s and I liked them, but it wasn't until you're able to actually be in those worlds, like with Morrowind and Oblivion, that you get to kind of create your own fantasy avatar and kind of experience these worlds however you want to. And um, for Oblivion, yeah, it was something that I got on the Xbox 360 originally, because again, I, unlike Jeremy, I was, I've was i largely been a console gamer my whole life, so that's one of our major differences is that I've been a console gamer a lot of my life, and he's been the PC guy. Um, and I always remember um, there was a really big bug issue with Oblivion on 360 that the load times would sometimes take five, six minutes to load an area Oof. until they actually patched it in the future. But, uh, you know, I really remember, you know, I didn't have a 360 myself. It was my brother's, but I bought Oblivion. I still have the collector's edition with the coin and the field manual in it. And um, I've played Oblivion quite a few times, you know, hundreds of hours in it. And it probably is my favorite Elder Scrolls game. As much as I say Morrowind might be, I think I'm looking through nostalgia blinders when I say Morrowind is my favorite. It's really hard to kind of choose between the two. If you kind of gave me both games and said, what do you want to play for the next 50 hours? I would probably say Oblivion because there's a lot of um, really cool things with it. And uh, the combat is actually doable. I think my major concern with it is that there's like a lot of rubber banding with the enemies and that you get, you know, level 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you get higher in level and all of a sudden you see these like roaming bandits that have glass armor or this, this high, you know, ebony armor or whatever else it is in the game. And it just kind of like breaks the immersion a little bit because I like games where um, when you enter a certain zone, enemies may be super high above your level or super low. I like a balance of of doing that. I don't like where the enemies scale with you because if you think about it, it kind of breaks the immersion of um, the world because all of a sudden the same bandit cave you raided when you were level five, you go back to it or a neighboring cave at level 60 and all of a sudden the same people are wearing high-end armor with like these huge weapons and stuff like that. It just, it breaks away for me a little bit, but I, I do really think that the uh, Oblivion added... Um, some really high-end voice actors like um, what's Patrick his name? Stewart, Patrick Stewart, um, Sean Bean. Sean, yep, um, and which was amazing. And a fun fact about uh, Sean Bean's—not Sean Bean's—Patrick uh, Stewart's involvement with it. He played Ural Septim. Was it the seventh or eighth? Seventh. He's the seventh. Okay, so he's like he's still the emperor in. Yes, the same emperor from all of the Elder Scrolls games. The major, the major emperor. Yeah, yeah. the seventh. Okay, so I guess with Patrick Stewart and his involvement with Oblivion, um, they gave him a one hundred page like dossier script about the character and as they're doing that they're thinking oh he's not going to be into this but he like he was super impressed and super involved with it even though he's in the game for what 15 20 minutes maybe uh, maybe depending on how fast you move um what's a better but what's a what's a better intro to the game the the morrowind sequence where you're on the boat with jube or uh the 40 minutes that you have to run through the sewers that's the question um but the thing is, like the more the Oblivion thing takes you forty minutes, thirty minutes, maybe. I would say on your first playthrough, I would say Oblivion's is better because it, especially as like from my perspective, coming into it as a new player, you're slowly get like you're, 
newer to art newer to RPGs, so you're kind of just given things slowly. Like it holds your I wouldn't say it holds your hands, but like it, it brings things forth. Like oh hey, here's some magic. It pulls you into the narrative. Here's a sword, right? Um, and then if you're smart, you just save right before you leave, and yeah. then every time you make yeah, a new character, right. you just go from there. But um. Yeah, it's always my least, until I figured out that trick, it was always my least favorite thing to do, is run through the sewers, kill the, like, the goblins and the rats and stuff. But, uh, no, I, I think as far as, like, obviously, like, Oblivion opens with a nice little, like, prophetic, uh, cutscene with mm-hmm. the Emperor. Um, I, I think, th- I think that's better than just waking up on a ship, yeah. personally. Yeah, I would really like to see with Elder Scrolls Six, and we've kind of talked a bit about them before, but I'd really like it to not be just a prisoner, <laughs> you know? Like that's it, their shtick. I know it is, but I think there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of do that. Like, what if you're like the son of a noble and you have to go and do something? I don't know. Yeah, like, prisoners just have, it's a blank slate. It really, the, is. the only game that uh, that I think you're not imprisoned is uh, Daggerfall. No, you start off in prison and you grab the key and then you got to go out the door. I thought in Daggerfall, aren't you you're shipwrecked? That yeah. That you're thinking of Arena. Am I thinking of Arena? Arena, you're imprisoned, and Dagger follows when when no, you're... you you start in that castle, and you have to kind of break out of the castle, right? No, because you're taking a ship to Dagger Fall, and you like wash up on like it crashes and washes up on shore. I'm like 38 percent sure. Okay, well, but... I'm like I'm like 42 percent sure. God anyway, there's a larger majority yeah. that these games that you start off as a prisoner with both Morrowind and Oblivion. Um, and yeah, while we can talk about the prisoner dilemma you know all day uh you kind of mentioned something off off camera here off off recording here something about the importance of the modding community to these games can you kind of tell me a little bit about that yeah i i think the games were important to modding in general so i mean modding games has always been a thing even back with arcade games people right. mod them yep but i think when it was around when oblivion came out in that 2000 uh was it six mid 2000s yeah mid 2000s there was this this sort of rampant commercialization of games that were like we live in now but they went from just these small projects that people would make money off of to these even more commercial successes and they these companies felt like they owned the property yeah. right the George Lucas thing with sure. Star Wars so you'd have games trying to really restrict being able to mod I know EA was a big proponent of just like this is our game you don't touch it you don't mod it or anything where with Bethesda they would release modding kits like they fully embrace the modding community and so a lot of the issues that people have with these old games are fixed by mods like your your issue of the level scaling yep I mean back in 2010 I was playing Oblivion with random encounters so you could be level one and run into a storm elemental Mm -hmm. um and it added a lot of really interesting like dynamics to the game some things that fix the leveling issues there's just a lot of stuff and i think if it wasn't for bethesda and a couple other game companies like fully embracing the modding communities i i don't know if we'd still have that anymore you know now every game can be modded again and even too um i was literally just the other day on my ps5 playing skyrim and they have even on the console versions, they have mods that you can install on the console version. So, again, Bethesda has become a very large company because of this series, uh, but also they still kind of have that fan interaction. And a lot of the things that, what is it, the Skyrim Anniversary Edition, have included mm-hmm. content that is created by fans. Built into the game. Built into you can, the game, You can yeah. download it right from the game. Right. So I think that's really cool that, yes, it is a big company... Yes, there are some questionable decisions that Bethesda makes, but I think... Fallout 76? Yeah, but I think that the, the fact that they still look for fans for input is still really great. Um, 
So that's cool. That's cool that you know the mod scene has been. I mean, again, with with mod scene in the PC realm, it's always a, a huge thing for a lot of games. But I, I do know that uh, with Morrowind, Oblivion, all these Elder Scrolls games, that does really uh, make things easier or uh, accessible to kind of play the game you want to. Because, like you said, these games largely are a fantasy simulator in a sense. So. Uh, like I said, I've played the original OG vanilla Morrowind on the Xbox, and I might be wrong with this, and maybe someone online will kind of correct me with this, but I know when you are playing the game of Morrowind, I don't know if this is on the PC version, but I know on the Xbox they were, people were saying that when you enter a new zone, or you like, whatever, when it has the loading screen in Morrowind, it's actually restarting the whole game and restarting where you need to be. So behind the scenes, the game itself is resetting. It's not just loading the zone, it's actually resetting the game and loading where you need to be. It's as if like the game is completely refreshing. So, no, that's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, whew, without further ado, do we want to jump into the actual games themselves? Yeah, let's get after it. So since we're recording this in person for once, um, we actually have our scripts and everything all printed out in paper. So if you hear any ruffling, that's all that what that is. So no worries there. So uh, with this... Uh, episode we're we're kind of splitting the duties of who's covering what so <laughs> you said duty i said duties uh obviously i can speak to oblivion which jeremy's gonna be covering and i'm gonna be covering morrowind because it is more meaningful to me so um just looking at the creation of morrowind elder scrolls 3 um i believe there was some packaging with daggerfall which said like be looking forward to the release of morrowind in 1998 because um Arena and Daggerfall, it sold decently well. Um, it did gain a pretty solid following in the early uh, in mid-90s. But after a time, they were getting more and more pressure to release the third one. And instead of um, doing that, they kind of released Battlespire and Redguard. All the while, they were taking the time to um, uh, develop Morrowind. And I read that Morrowind took 100 man years to develop. Um, the I was reading that oral history of Morrowind today, and they said that the the development team, which is about forty people, were working a hundred hours a week for one year. Holy shit! So yeah, again, uh, it was about only about a forty people, and a uh, majority of them were you know developer uh, uh, Q and A people, like they weren't the actual people uh, developing the game. So there was only about I don't know a dozen or so people that were actually involved with the creation of the game which I think is half of the reason why the game developed in the way that it did. Because one thing about modern video games versus a lot of the games that kind of came out earlier on, whether it's the 80s, 90s, or early aughts, is that you have smaller development teams, and if there's an issue or there's a concept they want to run by each other, it's typically resolved relatively easy versus a modern game where you have to kind of go through this whole bureaucratic process of talking to a table of 20 developers all agreeing and disagreeing with it. But my understanding of the history of Morrowind is that they would just kind of work in a group of about a dozen people and just bounce ideas off of each other. Um, so I'm going to kind of quote some of the Polygon's oral history of Morrowind to kind of set the tone for my understanding and explanation of the game. Um, looking at the oral history of Morrowind, there was an interview that Polygon did uh, and they got a hold of Michael Kirkbride, uh, Kirkbride who was one of the uh, I want to say lead concept artist for the game. So I'm going to quote uh, Michael Kirkbride from the Elder Scrolls 3 development team, who was one of like the original concept artists of Morrowind. And he said, 
Uh, the game was originally set in Somerset Isles, which is the home of the High Elves. And then we got bored and decided, man, this is really boring. How about we put it in a volcano with, like, giant bugs everywhere? And people were like, what? So Todd Howard, of course, everyone knows Todd Howard. Uh, he said the easiest way to get to uh, get anything past Todd was to basically say Star Wars. And Todd would kind of go along with it, which was true for me and anybody else. So I was like, this game should be like Dark Crystal meets Star Wars. And that was kind of their basic concept, you know, like vision for the whole game. And as it kind of developed, as they were kind of fleshing out assets for the game, he goes on to say, uh, essentially everything was kind of distinctive. The bugs and ash and giant mushrooms, they all basically came from when I was scared as a kid. My dad used to take me camping and when I was really little. So like mushrooms were like aliens. So what's the best way to beat up something that you're scared of? Just make it really fucking big and camp in it, live in it and claim it. Plus it looked really cool on page. And it was all about the extremes in the earliest drawings. Uh, it went from Dark Crystal and Star Wars to Dune. There's a lot of Dune influence. And they kind of built this Baroque society based on all of these interesting concepts. And, of course, here at Page of the Pixel, one of our real ideas is to kind of flesh out inspirations for these game series. So, again, this is kind of a continuation of the idea of what inspired this game in particular. So, Kirkbride goes on to say that our inspiration was always just a mixture of our favorite movies, fantasy films, previous video games, the pop culture soup that we'd been absorbed growing up. So, Morrowind was a huge blend of medieval fantasy, over-the-top high fantasy, and these Dune-like, really foreign-feeling locations. We'd have these subzones in the landscape that really drove thematically what the place in the game should feel like. We tried to give a lot of opportunities for both the creators and the player to experience a wide variety of cool things to look at, a cool place to be in, unquote. So in the development of Morrowind, it was really just these guys really bouncing these really bizarre ideas off of each other. And because they had given the they were given the money and time to do so, they really kind of took it and run with it. Um, so if you guys are ever interested in learning more about the creation of Morrowind, uh, just Google the, the Polygon oral history of Morrowind and it's super, super enlightening. But without further ado, I really want to get into the plot of Morrowind because it is kind of a continuation of some of the things we talked about with Arena and Daggerfall. So without further ado, I am going to jump into that right now. So I'm just sitting here shuffling my papers. This is like the most... Uh, paper that I've printed off for any of these scripts. I think because and Jeremy's just standing. He's, it's a lot. He's just he's just sitting there <laughs> laughing his ass off right now. It's a lot. You know, I'm just I'm fully pushing up the nerd glasses on this one. I really want to go all out for this because again, Morrowind's super important for me. And like I said before, um, every time I played the game, it was a new character, and I would play for six hours, just kind of messing around doing whatever I wanted. I didn't really get too far in the plot. I never did. You know, unlike Oblivion, which I actually played through the, you know, the, the, the Fighters fighters Guild and the Mages Guild and, like, the main quest line, uh, the Thieves Guild with uh, Grey Fox. With Morrowind, I never really actually um, got too far. I would get to the actual guy you need to speak to originally. But after that, because it's such an open world and I'd never experienced anything like that, I would just mess around. And I think that was half the fun of it. So when I was actually researching this episode, I actually had to dig into the research because I, I just didn't know. Despite the fact that this is one of my favorite games of all time, I have no idea what the story is. Um, I had an idea. I had an idea. But um, here we go. So we're going to talk a little bit about the actual backstory of the things that are going on. So you've, you, we've talked about the different eras and stuff like that. We've talked about you know the world and the characters and the races and stuff like that. So if you've listened to our last episode, which you should definitely check out, um, here is kind of a continuation of that backstory. So here we go. 
And the information that I'm pulling from is kind of a combination of different Wikipedias. It's from Reddit articles. It's from all over the place. And a lot of the information I found was from a particular Redditor that deleted his username. And I wanted to kind of credit him with this, but he or she doesn't exist anymore. But regardless, thank you for doing this. This is the sort of really strong narrative breakdown of the story of Morrowind. So here we go. Long ago, before the founding of the first empires of man, the elves were all one people, the Aldmar. In time, though, their differences proved greater than their similarities, and their unity was sundered. The first to leave were the Dwemer, who scorned the elven gods and worshipped instead science, logic, and their own cleverness. The next to leave were the followers of the prophet of Veloth, who became known as the Chimer. So the Chimer also scorned the elven gods, spirits born of primordial order to revere the powerful Daedra, born of primordial chaos. In particular, Velothi faith combined the worship of those Daedric spirits most helpful to mortals, called the three good Daedra, with a culture of fundamentalist ancestor worship. So if you've played Morrowind, that's a huge thing. Even if you've played early on in the game, the whole idea of like worship ancestors is super important to them. Trinimac, one of the elven gods, sought to stop Velos followers from abandoning elven ways. Angered by his interference and lies, Trinimac told his people, the good Daedra Bothiath, used his wiles to overpower the elven god and devour him. As Bothia took on the appearance of the god he'd eaten, he excreted what remained of Trinimac. This would become Malakath, the Daedra god of the orcs. The, dev the devout of Trinimac and Veloth alike rubbed their skin in Trinimac's remains. The followers of Trinimac turned a sickly green and became the orcs. The followers of Veloth turned a darker gold in their kin and became the Chimer. So to kind of set the tone for everything, the Chimer are essentially what the Dark Elves eventually became. And we'll get to that. Veloth led his people from the Isles, where the Elves had made their home, to the land they called Restain, now known as Morrowind, far to the northeast of Tamriel. When they arrived, however, they found that they were not alone. The outcast Dwemer had also made this land their home, filling the mountains with their citadels of tempered brass and steamwork machines. What began as territorial conflicts of the two outcast people seeking to share land became a religious war. The Chimer were a small group of dissidents fighting against an entrenched, technologically advanced society, the Dwemer. In the end, their defeat was inevitable. Slowly beaten back over the course of many bitter battles, the Velothi culture fell into a period of decline. Its towers turned to ruins as the Chimer became nomads. Uh, in the time, these nomads built a culture of their own which evolved from a loose clan allegiances to the complex political system of modern Morrowind's great houses. Uh, and if you've played Morrowind, you might have experienced these houses. It's Halalu, H-L-A-A-L-U, Redoran, and Talvani. So those are the, ho the houses that you can join in Morrowind. So those are those great houses. Think of it like um, just political affiliations, like really uh, bureaucratic, well-to-do families. You know what I mean? Like that's what those houses are in uh, Morrowind. Is they're really influential, old blood um, factions within Morrowind. Anyway... Sometime after the Chimer had regained their footing in the world and returned to a sedentary civilization, in the third century of the First Era, so we've talked about the eras last time, so all of this stuff is kind of going on in the First Era, uh, thousands of years before the actual game takes place. So this is all background story, okay? So during this time, the races of men um, kind of spread out and kind of made their mark on the world. In the north, the people of Skyrim used the powers of their dragon shouts to carve an empire, as they spread east into Restian, again, that's Morrowind, the Chimer found themselves again losing ground, and even the fortified Dwemer felt threatened by the invading uh, races of men. One Chimer 
Indoril Nerevar managed to unite his people as one to fight off the invaders, becoming the first Hortoror, or supreme military leader of the Chimer. This still was not enough. After two centuries of defeat, the two hated foes reluctantly found themselves allies of necessity, so Dumak Dwarf King of the Dwemer and Indoril Nerevar of the Chimer pledged in a union to defeat the invaders and win freedom for both their peoples. Discovering they could together, the two people lived in peace for centuries, forming a council of both nations' best minds to rule over Morrowind. This was shattered ultimately by the treachery of the Chimer Vorin Dagoth. The exact course of events are a mystery shrouded by time and bitterness, but there are a few hazy constants. The Dwemer discovered the heart of Lorcan, a remnant of the dismembered creator spirit still held sacred by the Chimer. Kangranak, the most brilliant mind in a lost Dwemer discipline known as the Tonal Ar Architecture, began to study the heart to discover how his people might escape mortality and gain godhood for themselves. Dagoth discovered this research and told Nerevar of the Dwemer's blasphemous plan. So again, just talking uh, about Daggerfall and the importance of the Lorcan um, and the, uh, the the giant mech that they're trying to build. This is the same thing in Morrowind, this, the same concept kind of repeating itself. Anyway, Nerevar demanded audience with Dumak, but the Dwemer King denied any knowledge of such plan. Many sources attribute this to a misunderstanding, that the king truly was ignorant of Kangranak's plan, but Dagoth insisted Dumak was lying and Nerevar's pride could stand no more. All negotiations broke down and the Dwemer and Chimer again plunged into war. How long the conflict lasted is lost to time, but it ended with Nerevar's leadership overcoming the Dwemer's technological advantage to force a climactic conflict at Red Mountain, the volcano housing the heart of Lorcan itself. Again, these exact events are lost to mystery, but the consequences are known. Kagranak uses tools of tonal architecture on the heart, and in one instant, every Dwemer in the world vanished. Exactly what became of them remains a mystery to this day. The Chimer had cause to mourn, for they had lost many of their people, among them the Nerevar himself, the greatest hero of their race. Some say Nerevar died in battle with Dumag, others from the treachery of Vorin Dagoth, and still others insist his own lieutenants murdered him to usurp his place. As he lay dying, Nerevar entrusted Dagoth to guard the tools of Kangranak, while made his most trusted companions swear never to use the heart, in fear that whatever happened to the Dwemer would happen to the Chimer as well. The Tribunal, as his companions were called, agreed and made a solemn vow to their dying companion. Each of them, Vivek, Sophisil, and Almaxia, took one of Kagranak's tools so that no one being would hold them all. Maddened by his secret use of the tools, or having used them because he'd been mad all along, Dagoth insisted only he could be trusted with the tools and refused to return them to Nerevar's companions. Having stolen some of the heart's power, Vorin Dagoth became Dagoth Ur, and it took all of Nerevar's companions and the mortally wounded Hortador himself to defeat Dagoth Ur and drive him back into Red Mountain. Dagoth, though, was only the first to betray Nerevar. In the years after Nerevar's death, his tribunal broke with their oath and met at the heart to take some of its power. Thus, Vivek, Sothasil, and Almexia became living gods. Azura, the Daedra in whose name they had sworn their oath to Nerevar, appeared to them and accosted them for their treachery. When the tribunal were not penitent, Azura cursed them and the whole of the Chimer people, swearing Nerevar would return to avenge their betrayal. The dark gold of the Chimer became the blue-gray of the Dunmer and their eyes turned red as the mountain where the tribunal had broken their oath. The tribunal led the spiritual life of the Dunmer people to this day, 
referring to the good Daedra of Veloth as anticipations of the tribunal, essentially placeholders for the true gods of the Dunmer. Every so often, there is a rumor of a Neverine, a returned Nerevar, but the militant temple of the tribunal is quick to quell such false, heretical rumors. Meanwhile, the influence of Dagoth Ur grows every year, and the horrific diseases spread in the ash from the Red Mountain. No longer able to beat his legions back with force, the living gods of the tribunal use their force to build a fence around the mountain and hold him in. Their powers wane because they cannot use the heart to restore their divinity. Then, an outlander born on a certain day to uncertain parents came to Morrowind from the prisons of the Imperial City at the behest of the Emperor. Seemingly just recruited to serve as a spy in the Emperor's Blades, the outlander was revealed to be much more. The foretold Nera Varine. So how are we feeling, Jeremy? Are we still awake? Are we still feeling... Um, I'm just uh, just chewing away on this uh, steak of a story here. Yeah, it's that's the backstory. This is he's thick. This is yeah. Um, I'm sure I, glad I did Oblivion. <laughs> again, this is the second time in a row where I get the I get the, uh, the the tough one. But again, reading through this, it's a really unique way of doing it. That these there's this constant war between some of the early races, and there's a sort of a, a council of people that see this ultimate power and eventually use it for their own benefit. And uh, as you kind of go through uh, Morrowind. You see these tribunal, um, which are essentially these three demigods that use this power of the heart of Lorcan to essentially declare themselves as gods. But there are people that think they're heretics and that's not the true uh, people that they worship. So that's kind of an interesting fact that you do actually end up interacting with some of these quote unquote demigods. So here, without further ado, is the actual main story of the game. I was just giving you some background. Here is the actual main story. So after a storm and a strange uh, dream vision, the player character, you, whoever you create, begins in a town called Sedanin, fresh off a boat from the mainland prison in the Imperial City. Um, you're freed by some string pulling of the current Emperor of Tamriel, uh, Uriel Septim VII. The player character is given the task of meeting Caius Cassandes, a member of the Blades, a secret group of spies and agents working for the Emperor and, of course, the Empire. Cassandes inducts the player into the Blades, on the Emperor's orders and sets the player on various quests to uncover the mysterious disappearance and revelations that the citizens of Vardenfell have experienced, particularly the Sixth House and the Ashlander prophecies of the Nerevarine. It is later revealed that the induction under Cassandes and the player's release from prison was due to the Emperor's suspicion that the player might be this foretold Nerevarine, a re reincarnation of this hero Indoril Nerevar or at least someone who could make a convincing imposter to use for political gain. So the emperor of the entirety of Tamriel thinks that you might actually be this reincarnation of this Chimer general, right? The player character is tasked with uncovering the prophecies regarding the Nervarine and to fulfill them to finally defeat Dagoth-Ur and his six house cult. Prophecies from the nomadic Dunmer people living in the Ashlands the Ashlanders, really great name, predict that the Nerevars incarnate will fulfill a set of seven prophecies. So I'm going to kind of walk you through them really quick. The first two prophecies are that the Nerevarine will be born on a certain day to uncertain parents and will be immune to the corpus disease, a divine disease created by Dagoth Ur. The player has already fulfilled the first and hence was chosen for the task. The player becomes immune to corpus by contracting the disease and surviving an experimental cure. Fulfilling these, the player seeks to complete the third prophecy, a test to find the moon and star. The symbolic ring, originally worn by Nerevar, 
which has the power to instantly kill anyone apart from himself who tries to wear it. Upon finding and equipping the ring, the player receives a vision from Azura, the ancient Daedric Prince of Dawn and Dusk, who confirms that the player is Nerevar's incarnate. The Neverarine completes the fourth and fifth trials, which are to rally the great houses of the Dunmer, the Dark Elves, and Ashlanders of Vardenfell under one banner. After receiving the support and being declared Hortator by every great house and Nervarine by all nomadic Ashlander tribes, the player is officially, albeit reluctantly, called the Nervarine by the Tribunal Temple, who normally persecutes anyone who claims to be the Nervarine and sentences them to death. The Nervarine is invited to the palace of the Poet King God Vivek, one of the three deities that form the basis of Morrowind's religion, known as the Tribunal, we talked about that before, to discuss the assault on Dagoth Ur's stronghold at the heart of Red Mountain. Vivek presents the player with the gauntlet Wraithguard, an ancient Dwemer artifact that allows the use of the tools Sunder and Keening. These ancient weapons were created by the Dwemer to tap into the power of the fabled Heart of Lorcan, which they found beneath Red Mountain. Again, that was like the basis of this whole betrayal. And these same tools have been used by the Tribunal and Dagoth Ur to reach godlike status. The tools can, however, also destroy the Fable Heart of Lorcan, but without having the Wraithguard equipped, they will deal a fatal blow to whoever wields them. The player then travels to, Red, to the Red Mountain to Dagoth Ur's Citadel. After talking with Dagoth Ur, who attempts to sway the player to his side with the claim that he was merely following Nerevar's final orders, the player and Dagoth Ur fight. Besting Dagoth Ur, the Neverine soon discovers that while the Heart of Lorcan is still intact, Dagoth Ur remains immortal, and he soon returns from death. Making his way to the very heart of the mountain, the Neverine finds the heart of Lorcan and destroys it, severing Dagoth Ur from his power and ultimately killing him. Akluakin's chamber, where Lorcan's heart resided, is destroyed in the process as the cavern collapses, and in turn, Red Mountain is cleared of blight and the sixth house falls. Upon escaping from the chamber, the Neverine is congratulated by Azura, who comes to reward the player's effort of fulfilling the prophecy. So that's the end of the actual plot. The game does not end upon the completion of the main quest, however, but the game world Vardenfell is affected in many different ways. The Blightstorms cease to plague the land, and the weak-minded followers of the Sixth House are reawakened, remembering nothing of their ordeal. The Dreamers, who harass the Neverines, fall silent, and the Neverine becomes widely known as the Savior of Vardenfell. The quintessential consequence of defeating Dagoth Ur was the destruction of the Heart of Lorcan. Due to their immortality linked to the Heart, Vivek and the other Tribunal members become mortal again, leaving Vivek's future in question and up to the player to determine. So you can end up killing him... Phew, so that is a lot of conversation about the background and uh, actual story of the game when you're actually playing it. So, Jeremy, just as a quick aside, summarize everything I said in one sentence. Alright, so you are the reincarnated version of some dude, and a big bad dude is gaining a bunch of power, and you go and stop him. Sure, yeah, that's about right. And again, I didn't know that playing the actual game. You know, I never really got super far on the quest line. And it's really kind of cool to see um, how the game allows you to kind of play it however you want to, depending on what sort of faction you want to side with. Or, how, again, there's also this this um, ambiguity of are you actually the savior? Are you the Nerevarine? Um, because there's a, actually like a text line where someone asks you, are you the savior? And he's like, no, I'm not. But, you know, I've, I've done all the trials up to this point. It does remind me really heavily of Dune um, and the story of Paul Atreides 
and is he the savior and stuff like that and it's this huge question of whether or not the the person in question the main character of the story is or is not this this grand savior and stuff like that so it's really interesting to see like all the trials that he goes through and before this point before your actual player character kind of comes into the fold there's been a lot of people that have said that they are the reincarnation of Nerevar and um, have been kind of squashed because of it. So it's interesting to see that you can kind of say you are or are you, you're not um, this great savior. And there's a lot of ambiguity with the way that you wanted to kind of side with this. Because is it really that Dagoth or is the bad guy or is the tribunal the real bad guy? So unlike a lot of games... Well, like Skyrim, where there's a really kind of cut and paste, not cut and paste, but cut and dry uh, sort of moral, you are the good guy fighting the bad guys. This game, it's like, what's all going on here? Like, what is the real story here? Because again, depending on who you talk to, you're going to hear one thing versus another. And having to interact with certain groups of people versus other groups, you're going to hear a different story. You're going to hear a different um, social and political element that kind of breaks its way into this. And uh, before we have uh, Jeremy jump into the story of Oblivion, uh, I do want to talk a little bit, very, very briefly, about the two expansion packs that kind of came with Morrowind. Um, I think when I first bought Morrowind, I bought the Game of the Year edition, um, which included Tribunal and, uh, what was it, Blood Moon, I believe is the name of it? Mm -hmm. Yep, Blood Moon. Uh, so here is the brief story of Tribunal. It is nowhere near as long as the last stuff I told you. Please, I had to kind of re-edit and re-record that 18,000 times here. So here's Tribunal's story. So the plot will start after the player first goes to sleep. So once you have Tribunal installed, you go to sleep and your player is attacked by assassins who is later revealed to be a member of the Dark Brotherhood, which is an assassin's guild that spans Tamriel. Uh, as you play uh, Oblivion and Skyrim, you actually interact with the Dark Brotherhood. They're kind of a constant uh, in the background of the Elder Scrolls games. Uh, to find out more about the Dark Brotherhood, the player must be sent to Mournhold, the capital of Morrowind. Once in Mournhold, the player will have to locate the head of the Dark Brotherhood and complete a series of side quests for the new king, Helseth, and the living god, Almexia. Almexia has ruled Morrowind for thousands of years alongside of Vivek and Sil. That's one of the tribunal. Uh, so they call themselves a tribunal and are worshipped by the Dark Elf people. After the completion of one of the side quests, a group of mechanical creatures called the Fabricants suddenly attack the Plaza Brisindi Dorum. The creatures emerge from the statue in the middle of the plaza, and after their attack, a secret patches. After their attack, a secret passageway to a Dwemer rune is revealed. Since the creatures are mechanical, it is suspected that the secret of God Sothasil is behind the attack. The player then has to investigate the runes and complete a few more side quests in order to reconstruct Nerevar's lost sword called True Flame. Upon acquiring the sword, the player is sent back to the Clockwork City in order to kill Sothasil. The player continues to explore all of the rooms of Clockwork City, finally arriving to find Sothasil dead. When the player tries to leave the room, Almexia appears and alleges that she had killed Sothasil and instigated the attack on Mournhold. She does this in order to gain more power and control over the citizens and the tribunal. Having been driven mad by the heart of Lorcan, she perceives Sothasil's silence as mockery. The player is then forced to kill her before returning to Mournhold. The Daedric Prince Azura reveals that the heart of Lorcan drove Almexia mad and made her hungry for more power, and that mere mortals cannot become gods without consequences. By destroying the heart of Lorcan and killing Almexia, the player continues fulfilling the Nerevarine prophecies, particularly the death of the Almselvi Tribunal. So that is the plot of Tribunal, so it's really focused more so on the 
I guess one of the other tribunal members, in, in, in addition to Vivek, who's in the actual main uh, series of the games, is actually explores the other tribunal members. So I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, so the, the second expansion pack that did come out, I think, in November of 2002, Blood Moon, which I was actually more interested in because it's like werewolves and stuff like that. Um, and it takes place in Solstheim. So I'll talk about that really briefly here. It's just a paragraph or so. So in the Blood Moon main quest, the player starts by doing odd jobs for the Imperial's Fort Frostmoth on Solstheim. When the fort is attacked by werewolves, the player must travel to the Nord village of Skal at the north part of the island. The player must then perform several rituals to be accepted into the village. The player is informed of the Blood Moon Prophecy, a ritualistic hunt led by the Daedra Lord Hyrasine. The Daedric Prince takes the four greatest champions on Solstheim, including you, the player character, to his glacier home. He tells them that they must fight until only one remains alive. If the player survives, they must fight one of Hyrasine's aspects, which is strength, which is represented by a bear, speed, and which is represented by an elk, or guile, which is his actual own form. If the player wins, they must escape from the crumbling glacier, thereby completing the main quest. So it's not anything related to the tribunal or the history of Morrowind. It's more related to the whims of a Daedric god. So yeah, that's... Oh, man, that's all of Morrowind. I am so spent after talking about that stuff. Don't take a nap. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm feeling it. But one thing I want to kind of conclude with is talking a little bit about the houses of Morrowind, just really briefly. Um, I kind of mentioned it before that there are several main houses within Morrowind that kind of control the, the, the local governance and politics of certain regions. Um, Hlalu, which is largely more commercial-focused. I know once you go to the city of Belmora, which is one of the starting cities, in Morrowind, they're kind of in control of that area. There's also House Redoran, which is more focused on like warriors and stuff like that. Uh, there's House Tilvani, uh, which is also focused more so on uh, magic and intelligence. And then I kind of mentioned it when I was talking about the original portion of the plot, the sixth house. That's more or less the cult of Dagoth Ur. So there's several houses within Morrowind that kind of control the ebb and flow of like daily life and politics and everything. Um, and the the Wikipedia definition, the, the Elder Scrolls Wikipedia definition, is that the Great Houses are large establishments throughout Morrowind. Uh, they are the extended lineages of quote-unquote civilized Dunmer, or Dark Elves, uh, with many non-Dark Elf retainers. The Great Houses' traditions derive from ancient Dunmer clans and tribes, but they now function something like political parties, like I just said. Uh, of the Empire's five recognized Great Houses, only three have governance and uh, a commercial presence on the island of Vardenfell, the Hlalu, Redoran, and Telvani. The Six Healths is like the underground cultist, necromancy, stuff like that. So again, uh, just to kind of clarify what the houses are, they are like the political entities in certain parts of Vardenfell. Whew. So that being said, um, I'm done talking about Morrowind, man. It's a lot. Um, and I think it's really kind of cool to uh, see the creative force behind the creation of this because this is a really interesting fantasy story. That you have the inner interplay of these generals and warriors that want to become gods, and the reincarnation of their associate who eventually kind of comes back, maybe to destroy them. So, long story short, Morrowind be thick. So, any other final conclusions as I wrap up Morrowind's story? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a man of few words. No, it's. By far, I would say probably definitely most the most politically intriguing yeah. of the games. That's why she's so thick. Um, Arena was just very MacGuffin focused. Mm -hmm. um, similar with uh, Daggerfall. Daggerfall. 
And you'll find pretty similar with Oblivion, too. Um, they're, they're just that standard go-get-the-thing-to-do-the-thing, where this is more almost like the story of Hercules, where your trials, your tribulations, to yep. prove that you are the the savior of uh, the Morwen area. So, and Plus political intrigue, which is always fun. And I think a lot of the, when I was reading the, the oral history of it, they kind of talk about how the developers had a lot of free reign. They had saw the success, so they had some a little bit bigger of a budget to kind of develop what they want. And like I said, it's a smaller development team. So uh, the writers just kind of went hog wild with just it. Just ham, hamsters. Yeah, yeah it, and I, I really appreciate not even actually, again, not actually playing through it myself all the way through, just seeing the... Um, the, the options and choices that you have to kind of make as you're kind of playing through this game and how keeping with Daggerfall, which was pretty complex in itself, I think this is easily the most complex game of them all. Absolutely. Not not just in terms of the politics, but also like the landforms, which are very alien and, um, you know, strange to a lot of people because they have like these the, the mushroom houses and they have like all these different strange creatures and stuff like that Vardenfell, Morrowind, it's just a really strange but really cool game and after reading through all of this you can absolutely see the uh, the Star Wars influence the, the, the Crystal Shard influence and of course the, the Dune influence of course too. I think uh, the, the most interesting thing about Morrowind is the actual, the actual landscape I, I mean the first two I guess you could explore kind of everywhere, so they were wider. The first couple you could explore everywhere, so they were, um, they had had that diversity. But when you're talking 3D um, worlds, Skyrim and Oblivion just take place in just fantasy realms. Fantasy realms, just generic fantasy realms. When you have the Black Marsh to explore, which is just kind of a poop swamp, or elsewhere where they've got massive jungles and. Uh, deserts, just unique terrain. Uh, I think it's just really neat that they went mushroom houses, and I would like to go back to some of those more unique areas as opposed to just another generic fantasy realm that you get with Skyrim and Oblivion. And I don't know if you're going to talk about this once you get to Oblivion, but I think a large influence for the creation of Oblivion was the popularity and strength of the Lord of the Rings series. So I think when looking at a lot of the development of Oblivion, they were kind of leaning into the popularity of fantasy kind of coming into it. So Oblivion kind of feels in the same category of the Lord of the Rings in a, in a way of that tr traditional Western European fantasy sense. Absolutely. A lot, of the, a lot of the dungeons of Oblivion are the old Iliad ruins. So you're exploring essentially kind of the the similar terrain that you wouldn't see in, like, Lord of the Rings, right, in the, in the caves. And the Dwarven Ruins look very similar to what you see in Oblivion. In addition to some of the creatures in Oblivion being more, like, mythological, I don't think you fight minotaurs in Morrowind? No, it's a lot of, like, supernatural things, like, you know spirits and the, the atronox is it yeah and yeah like, the, the elementals and like you fight a lot of dwemer creatures which are like the steampunk things right yeah. and and when you get into oblivion i think it brings in some more of the generic fantasy things you, your minotaurs you've got nymphs you've got liches animated skeletons animated skeletons yeah it, it, it brings you more into kind of a 
more a more pop culture fantasy as opposed to their own unique blend of fantasy. And you gotta wonder if that's something that the uh, creators of the game wanted to do because they felt that was the direction they wanted to, or they felt that if we appeal to more of these standard tropes of fantasy, it's gonna sell more. Because obviously Morrowind sold really well. Uh, obviously it's why I know it, it's why a lot of people know it, but you gotta wonder if it was too weird for some people that they wanted to go with more of a quote-unquote traditional direction with Oblivion. Maybe that's a part of it. I don't really know. I could, I could see that being definitely a thing, because I, I know it did sell well, but I think it's still widely considered a cult classic. I don't think it was an immediate success, was it? I think it, 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 it's a bedrock game for the franchise. I think a lot of people, even if they're not huge fans of it, they recognize how important Morrowind is. But I think for most people, like you included, uh, Oblivion was really the selling point into the franchise. Yeah, there's some quote-unquote... I liked it when before they were popular, and I think that kind of goes with the Morrowind crowd of it, because you know, with the uh, success of Oblivion and Skyrim, people say, "Oh, you know, these are the best games in the series." But the people that are, you know, a little bit older will say, "Oh no, it's it's Daggerfall and Morrowind all the way." So uh, it's interesting. I, obviously, the, the the numbers of Skyrim are just dwarfing all of the other ones. But, I mean, uh, it's by far the most popular one of the series. Oh, 100%. Skyrim is. We'll we'll talk about that. We're not going to get into that yet. But anyway, here's here's more about Oblivion <clears throat> with Jeremy. All right. So, Oblivion takes place six years after Morrowind in the province of Cyrodiil. A cult known as the Mythic Dawn has assassinated the three sons of Emperor Uriel Septim VII. Accompanied by Imperial bodyguards, the Emperor makes way to the Imperial dungeons to a cell that holds a secret escape route from the city. It is in this cell our hero regains consciousness shortly before the Emperor arrives. As the guards open the passage, Septim recognizes the hero from his dreams. Only knowing the hero is important, but not why, the hero is pardoned of their crimes and free to flee with the Septim through the tunnel. Agents of the Mythic Dawn pursue re relentlessly through the Undercity. With his protection slowly dwindling, Septim knows he is fated to die by the hand of these assassins. Turning to the hero, Septim entrusts him with the Amulet of Kings and asks them to take it to Joffrey at Wainan Priory. The hero flees as Septim is cut down by the Mythic Dawn. When the hero arrives at Wainan Priory, Joffrey informs them that the death of the Emperor and note with no living heirs, the Old Covenant has been broken. With the Dragonfires extinguished, Tamriel's protection from the Plains of Oblivion has been destroyed. The only way to relight the fires permanently is to find someone with royal blood to retake the throne. However, there is an illegitimate heir, Martin, a priest of the city Kavach. Joffrey insists he house the amulet at the Priory to keep it safe while the hero retrieves Martin. At Kavach, the countryside is littered with refugees. A gate to Oblivion has been opened outside the city, Barring entrance and creatures known as Daedra have sacked the city. The hero enters the gate to the twisted hellscape into the realm of oblivion. Fighting to the top of a tower, they remove a magical sigil stone, which powers the gate, escaping before it closes for good. With the aid of the hero, the city militia are able to take it back, saving the remaining survivors, including Martin. The pair head back to the Priory to find it under assault by the Mythic Dawn. After dispatching the agents, they discover the Amulet of Kings has been stolen. Though not all hope is lost. As long as Martin is alive, they can relight the Dragonfires by retrieving the Amulet. Martin is escorted to Cloud Ruler Temple, the residence of an order sworn to protect the Emperor, of which Joffrey is the Grand Master of. 
At Cloud Roller Temple, the Blades officially recognize Martin as the new Emperor, and he is given command of the Blades. The hero sets out in search of the amulet. After gathering enough information, they learn the Mythic Dawn is a cult devoted to Maroon's Dagon, the Prince of Destruction. They believe Dagon is the true creator of the world, and wish for him to cleanse it of all impurities. The hero infiltrates the secret cult meetings and attempts to steal back the amulet, though the leader, Mankar Cameron, escapes with the, with the amulet through a portal. The hero instead steals the book used to open the portal, the Mysterium Xarxes, bringing it back to Martin. Studying the book, Martin discovers a way to open a portal with three objects of intense power. A Daedric artifact, the Blood of the Divines, specifically the armor of the first Septim Emperor stained with his blood, and the Great Welkin Stone. Upon collecting the items, Martin reveals a super secret fourth item, a Great Sigil Stone. To obtain this, Martin and Joffrey agree to allow the city of Bruma to be attacked. A Great Oblivion Gate is opened, allowing our hero to recover the final ingredient. With the components gathered, they open a portal at Cloud Ruler Temple, and the hero enters into Mankar Cameron's created Realm of Paradise. The hero battles their way through Mythic Dawn agents and Daedra, finally confronting Cameron before slaying him and retrieving the Amulet of Kings, returning finally to Cloud Ruler Temple. With Amulet and Emperor reunited, the Blades take Martin to the Imperial City to relight the Dragonfires. Though they are interrupted as the city has been under attack by Daedra and a colossal avatar of Maroon's Dagon. Fighting their way through the city, the group reaches the Temple of the One. Martin realizes they are powerless against Dagon's avatar. He turns to the hero and explains that there is only one way for him to defeat Dagon. Martin bids the hero farewell as he shatters the Amulet of Kings, merging himself with the spirit of Akatosh, becoming an avatar of Akatosh. Dagon and the Avatar of Akatosh battle before Dagon is cast back into oblivion. As Dagon is being destroyed, the Avatar of Akatosh lets out a mighty roar as he turns to stone. Although the amulet has been destroyed, Martin's sacrifice has sealed the gates of oblivion forever, protecting the Empire from Dagon. With the Septim line ended, the Third Age also comes to a close. With the Fourth Age a cloud of uncertainty looms over a leaderless empire. Ooh, ominous. Spooky. Spooky dookies. So yeah, that's the general plot of Oblivion. I distinctly remember kind of playing through the game and then getting to the end of the game and seeing Sean Bean turn into a dragon. <laughs> uh, I always thought he looked so weird in the Emperor's robes. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I do think overall it's a really cool game and a good entry point for a lot of people that maybe are unfamiliar with the franchise or maybe unfamiliar with fantasy in general. I think it's a great starting point for a lot of uh, gamers and despite the fact that it doesn't have the moral ambiguity that Morrowind does, I think the story overall is really cool and of course um, both with the stories that we kind of talked about with Morrowind and Oblivion, it's not just the main story. There's so many side quests and guilds and just individual experiences that you can have that kind of make the game a whole. But I would say Oblivion is probably one of the higher stakes games. I mean, Arena is just a mad king. Yep. I mean, uh, Daggerfall. There's a bunch of war and some some slight genocide. 
Well, it's also the idea of allowing that giant mech with the Heart of Lorcan to kind of come back into Tamriel. Right, but what what you're dealing with in Oblivion is essentially demons invading the world and destroying it. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, high, I, I feel like it has higher stakes. Yeah, even with Morrowind, you're really just dealing with... A localized issue. The localized politics of these god kings. Because one yeah. thing that the game doesn't do a great job of sort of illustrating is... So this event is known as the Oblivion Crisis. Yep. And these gates are not just opening in Tamriel, but they're opening all over. They're on every con or, um Cyrodiil. Okay, so they're in, they're all over Tamriel. Yes, they're all over Tamriel. But it's just we just see it in we Cyrodiil. We just see it. In, yes, we just see it in Cyrodiil. Right. If we um, didn't if we didn't mention that this takes place in the Imperial home territory Cyrodiil. Yes. I think I've mentioned that, but I don't remember. But anyways. Um, and one sort of interesting story I, I found about the Oblivion Crisis as a whole, and why Argonians are the best race. Okay. So, when the Oblivion Crisis started, the Histories called Argonians back to their homeland to protect the Histories. Yeah. And the Hist sap they produced started making the Argonians stronger, resistant to fear, just crazy battle machines. Did they have, like, a Rocky training montage? Absolutely. Okay. They were just slamming his sap. Okay. And they actually not only defended their homeworld, but pushed the Dramora back into the gates and started invading the gates themselves. Oh. Where every other place was just basically under Def siege and laying yeah. waste, the Argonians just pushed them back to hell oh. and started invading hell. That's that's pretty baller. Yes. So while it's just kind of like a, put a band-aid over it in Cyrodiil, the cats are just like, we're going... We're going to you. Not the cats, the Argonians. Oh, sorry, Argonians, yes. not the Khajiit. Argonians, the lizard man. Yeah, okay. Cool. But yeah, um, and then obviously the events of Oblivion rain pretty heavily on the next game, Skyrim. Which we're um, going to talk about soon. The lack of an emperor definitely weakens the empire as a whole. Which allows for more regional kings to kind of take power. Yep, and the Thalmor, which are a big, a big baddie in the next game. Which we're going to talk about right after this. So any final reflections on Oblivion before we kind of close things up here? Um, or or, or both, any of these games. Let's kind of, let's both talk about both of these games. Both Morrowind and, and Oblivion. I think both of them are fantastic games in their, in their own genre, in their own time. Because, like I said before, I'd never experienced a game like Morrowind uh, coming out in the early 2000s. Showing that games can be non-linear and show a lot of opportunity and choice depending on however you wanted to play, you can do it. And having a sandbox like that, I mean, it really didn't... I mean, is this before... Is this before Grand Theft Auto? Because Grand Theft Auto... Maybe it was 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. But with in that same time period, about 20, 21 years ago, you're starting to see games kind of open up. And yes, Grand Theft Auto was this amazing destructive playground, but Morrowind is this same playground, but it has this fantasy element to it. So it's not like you're living in New York City, you're living in a fantasy realm, but you have authority and you have agency to essentially do whatever you want in this in this realm. And the choices that you make and whoever you end up siding with um, was, super was super huge for a lot of people. And I think the same thing with Oblivion. I think the narrative kind of narrowed down a little bit where you kind of have to follow the order of... Um, Absolutely. You know, getting the true heir to the to the empire and stuff like that, and defeating. There's, there's less intrigue. That's yeah. for sure. Well, I mean, I think uh, again, I'm I'm never gonna dis oblivion necessarily, but I think the plot is a lot more point A to point B, 
while Morrowind is point A to wherever you want. Um, I think Oblivion is an amazing game in its own right, despite the uh, characters' faces. Um, I think there's so many cool things about it. And again, I think both games are just an amazing experience, regardless of your experience with them yourself. Uh, if you haven't played Morrowind or Oblivion, I don't know why you're listening to this right now, you should be playing these games because they are so formative to a lot of fantasy games and just games in general that have kind of come after the fact. And, you know, without these games, we wouldn't be sitting here probably. I agree. Um, I think for me, the most interesting thing now that I've played through Skyrim, looking back at them uh, retrospectively, I think it is really cool to play through the shift of an age. Yeah. If you look at a lot of fantasy... It's you're living in the third or the fourth age, and there's all these cool stories about things that happened to the thousand, the first age, and the second age, and you just hear about it. You just hear about it, but you as a player can go, ah, yes, I remember the dawn of the fourth age when the line of emperors crumbled. Like, it's really cool to be a part of that, and I yeah. think that's one thing that I think Oblivion has like a little special place as a retrospective in my heart of like, ah, yes, I can play the Elder Scrolls Six when it comes out and be like. I remember before everything was shit. Yeah, because it shows the shift of like like Jeremy was saying it. You know, Oblivion shows the shift between the ages from the third to the fourth age. Because I think what Skyrim takes place what four or five hundred years after the yeah, fact? and the empire is crumbling basically. And you said that the space between Morrowind and Oblivion is what six years? Yes, that's it. Yep. Wow. So basically, at the same time, these kind of things are going on. So it really kind of breathes more life into the world around you. And the fact that these people just basically came up with this entire uh, world, this this whole world that they've built over the course of these couple of games, kind of allows the player to kind of take the reins and kind of build their own legacy in it. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that all the other games have been through, I shouldn't say through the eyes of the, the Septums, but like in a way they've been sort of the main driving force of the story. And now we get to branch out and see what, what, what's on the future. I mean, I'm hoping it's more with the Thalmor because I think they're an interesting bad guy. Well, and like I said before, I really hope that the fact that they've taken over ten years to kind of come up with the true sequel to Skyrim, I really hope that Elder Scrolls Six is every territory. I, that would be amazing. I mean, I think they could possibly do it, but again, it it's going to be another fifty years before 500 we know. Five hundred gigs. Oh, it's going to be a couple terabytes at this point. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's our general retrospective on Morrowind and Oblivion. Again, as you can kind of tell in our uh, speaking about it, how much we really love and appreciate these games. And we hope you guys do, too. Uh, we're, we've had a really good time to kind of talking about these games, and we're really excited to kind of close things off. Uh, the next time we come around with Skyrim and The Elder Scrolls Online which oddly enough takes place before all of these games take place, but we'll get to that uh, next time. So without further ado, um, we appreciate you guys kind of sticking with us and enjoying our Elder Scrolls retrospective. So uh, kind of check us out wherever you guys can get your podcasts, you know, share with your friends, everything like that. So this is Rejoin again, signing off for Page of Pixel podcast. Jeremy, want to send us out something fun, something fun. Literal. I like it. Let's get to bashing butts as well as... <laughs> These nuts. Alright, take care, guys.
I don't like the way that sounded coming out of my mouth. She said. Martin bids the pharaoh fa- the pharaoh. Hi ho. <laughs> Keep it. <laughs>